0: Well, I love sport. Uh, Many of you probably already know that. And uh, I'm a a very one-eyed supporter. I get very biased. And uh, so a week and a half ago, I felt the sting of uh, New South Wales losing to Queensland in the uh, deciding state of origin. Uh, Last Sunday, uh, I felt, well, actually, it was Monday morning, I felt the joys of Nadal uh, beating Federer in the Wimbledon final. Uh, And that's the thing with sport. Uh, There's always winners and losers. For somebody to win, someone else has to lose. If one team's going to win, then their opponent must lose. That's just the way it goes. There's always winners and there's always losers. In a nutshell, that's Zephaniah 2. That's Zephaniah 2. In Zephaniah 2, Judah wins. Judah wins. But for her to win, her enemies must lose. Her enemies must lose. Zephaniah 2 is all about God giving his people the victory at the expense of... Of their enemies. Now, if you can remember last, from last week, this is a big change uh, from uh, last week. If you remember in chapter 1, Judah was under the judgment of God. They were in the storm of God's judgment and his fury and his wrath and it was a dark, dark day. Here in chapter 2, Judah is restored as the people of God. As instead their enemies come under the judgment of God. In chapter 1, there was just that one thin single shaft of light breaking through the storm of God's judgment. And remember that one, seek the Lord, perhaps you'll be sheltered. Just one thin ray of hope. Well, in chapter 2, that shaft of light gets wider and there's all sorts of shafts of light breaking all over the place. The sun's breaking through the storm of God's judgment because the news of chapter 2 is that for those that survive the coming judgment of God, they will be restored. And it's going to be better than what they had before. Old Testament Judah, she was surrounded by her enemies. She had superpowers bearing down upon her. And when God restores them, he'll have done away with her enemies. She will have no more enemies at all. And she will live in peace. Old Testament Judah was being encouraged in Zephaniah 2 to see the world from God's perspective that he will have the certain victory. And it was true for Old Testament Judah. It's true for the Lord Jesus who came to fulfil Zephaniah chapter 2. And for us who are the people of God through Jesus himself, this truth is true for us as well, that one day God will give us the victory at the expense of our enemies. God will win. And his enemies will lose. Now, before we hook into uh, Zephaniah chapter 2, I just need to correct something that I said uh, last week. I got some historical details wrong, and uh, I want to correct it for two reasons. One, I got it wrong, so it's good to get it right. And uh, two, it's actually going to help us to understand uh, chapter 2. I said last week that Zephaniah was around about 620 BC. I was right about that, that's okay. Uh, I also said, though, that the Babylonians were the superpower threat bearing down on top of um, Judah at the time. Uh, that was wrong. Uh, at the time of Zephaniah, Assyria, the nation of Assyria, was still the world power. So to help you, I'm just going to put up a quick timeline. Uh, in uh, 720, around about 722 BC, uh, Assyria wiped out Israel. That's the northern tribes. Remember, the, the nation was split in civil war to the north and the south. Well, about 722 BC, Assyria came and completely wiped out the north, completely wiped out Israel. About 100 years later is Zephaniah, and uh, he's preaching to Judah, of course, because Israel's no more. But it wasn't until about 612 BC that Babylon came and wiped out um, Assyria. And then in 586 BC, Babylon then wiped out Judah. So you can see there that at the time of Zephaniah, Assyria is still the world power. It's not Babylon at all. Um, Assyria is still the threat at the time of the book of Zephaniah. Now, Judah's got more enemies than just Assyria. She's got enemies all around her. And in chapter 2, it's Judah's enemies that come into focus and into God's firing line of his judgment. And God's going to deal with them so that Judah can live in peace. Judah will enjoy one day, the future, the spoils of God's victory. So up to point one on your outline, which is in the middle of your bulletin, if you're using that. And for God's people to be restored, first their enemies have to be taken out. So let's have a look. Zephaniah 2. And first we're going to have a look at what was in store for, for the enemies of God and his people. Chapter 2 and verse 4. The enemies are in view here. Gaza will be abandoned and Ashkelon left in ruins. At midday Ashdod will be emptied and Ekron uprooted. Woe to you who live by the sea, O Kerithite people. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you and none will be left. So there's God's word to the Philistines. They will be destroyed with no survivors. Uh, Moab and Ammon are next. Uh, Skip down to verse verse 8. It's God speaking again. I've heard the insults of Moab and the taunts of the Ammonites who insulted my people and made threats against their land. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. Moab and Ammon, these enemies of Judah, they to become like Sodom and Gomorrah. If you can remember back in Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah are the two cities that God completely annihilated by burning down, raining sulfur on them. And God here says that Moab and Ammon are to be completely annihilated, to become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Our Next in line is Assyria. Which is quite surprising, really, because, remember, they're at the time of Zephaniah the world's superpower. And yet God declares that they will be humiliated and destroyed. Have a look, verse 13, verse 13. He will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh, that's Assyria's capital city, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there, creatures of every kind, The Desert Owl and the Screech Owl will roost on her columns. Their calls will echo through the windows. Rubble will be in the doorways. The beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the carefree city that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am and there's none besides me. What a ruin she has become. A lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists." What we've got here is a picture of Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, becoming a ghost town. Uh, where, where the picture is of animals, of birds, uh, screeching out and their calls echoing in the windows. Why? Because the place is deserted. There's no one there. It's completely deserted because it's been destroyed. Assyria is to be wiped out. Now, in the place of uh, Judah's enemies, as God, when he deals with them, in the place of Judah's enemies is to come Judah herself. Uh, Judah was to be uh, lifted up, if you like, after God had laid low her enemies. Uh, The survivors of God's judgment upon Judah, the survivors of his own people, they would get to inherit all of the land of their enemies. And so it's the idea of the remnant, those that are left over, will get to enjoy the spoils of God's victory. Now this idea of a remnant, uh, it's a reasonably common one in the Bible, and it's just the idea of the ones left over, the faithful few, the, the, the righteous few of God's people that, will, um, that are God's people that will survive after the judgment of God. So in Zephaniah, it's the remnant, it's the bits that are left over, the, the people that are left over after God's come and judge them, as we saw in chapter 1. It's a bit like how someone who's got lots of money Uh, You can imagine someone with lots and lots of money and they've got lots and lots of friends because they've got lots and lots of money. But once they lose their money, well, then they lose their friends. Well, not all their friends. Most of their friends, so-called friends, will leave. But they'll have you know, the righteous few, the the faithful few that stick with them through thick and thin. What's that idea? It's the ones that are left over. It's the faithful few that will get to enjoy the spoils of God's victory. So we read in verse 6, go back to verse 6. Uh, in verses 4 and 5 God has said the Philistines will be smashed and then in verse 6 we read the land by the sea where the Kerathites dwell that's where the Philistines dwell the land by the sea where the Kerathites dwell will be a place for shepherds and sheep pens it will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah there they will find pasture in the evening they will lie down in the houses of Ashkelon The Lord, their God, will care for them. He will restore their fortunes. You see, the remnant, the ones that survive the judgment of God, they will get to inherit the land of the Philistines. They'll be restored as God's people. Or again in uh, verse 9. Verse 9. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The survivors of my nation will inherit their land. You see, in the end, Judah will win. The remnant of God's people will enjoy the spoils of God's victory, and it'll come at the expense of their enemies. Now, this would have been very comforting news to to the people of Zephaniah's time. If you can imagine being a, a, a Jew, one of the people of Judah, in the time of Zephaniah, you've got your enemies all around you, the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Moabites, you've got Assyria, you've got world superpowers bearing down on you. And here's the promise of God, one day, guys, one day, all your enemies will be dealt with and you will be restored as my people. Even more comforting still, when Babylon eventually does come and wipes out Judah and takes them away in devastating destruction and they're prisoners of war in the land of Babylon. And if they could recall the the words of Zephaniah, the promise of God, that one day their enemies will be destroyed and they will again be restored as the people of God. That day came. Uh, They were only in Babylon about 70 years and they were returned to the land. And you can imagine their anticipation, can't you? You can imagine them coming back with those comforting words of Zephaniah. All our enemies are going to be wiped out and we're going to be restored in the land. You can imagine their excitement and their anticipation and it all fell flat. It was a complete deflation because when they came back into the land, sure they were back but they were still under foreign rule. It wasn't the Babylonians this time, it was the Persians. They were still the subjects of another superpower. And so they were back in their land, but they didn't rule it, they didn't own it, they didn't rule the land of their enemies. And so you get to this and you go, well, well what do we make of Zephaniah? What about the promises of God? What's going to happen? Well, the New Testament tells us that it wasn't until Jesus came along that these promises were fulfilled. That the remnant of God's people to receive the promises of God, well, the remnant was reduced down to one, the righteous few, down to a righteous one, the righteous, the, the remnant of God's, the remnant being a people down to the remnant being a person, and that person being Jesus Himself, He is the true Israel. So, I have to point to your outline and skip across to Matthew chapter two. Don't go too far. Matthew chapter 2 is just two or three books across. Or maybe four, but not far. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. Uh, In Matthew 2, Jesus has just been born. Uh, The Magi have come and paid their respects. Herod, the Roman king of the area, he wants to have Jesus killed. And so we read this in uh, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 13. When they'd gone, that's the Magi, when they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. Here's the clincher. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. That is a very interesting use of that quote from the prophet Hosea by Matthew. When Hosea said that, he was referring to the nation of Israel. Out of Egypt God called his son, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt in the Exodus. And here Matthew applies it to Jesus when he came up out of Egypt. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the true Israel. He is Israel. And so the promises that were given to God's Old Testament people, that their enemies would be destroyed and that they would enjoy victory, those promises in the end are for Jesus. They're for Jesus. And we can see this most clearly, can't we, in his resurrection from the dead. For there his enemies are completely embarrassed, humiliated, and defeated death itself is conquered sin has been dealt with satan has been uh, vanquished and jesus lived from this perspective jesus lived and died from the perspective that he knew that god would in the end give him victory over his enemies Uh, you can see it in his willingness to suffer and die at the hands of his enemies you can see it because he entrusted himself to his father you can see it Because for the joy that was set before him, he scorned the shame of the cross, we read in the book of Hebrews. Jesus knew that one day he would again sit again at the right hand of his father, that victory would be his. He lived and he died from the perspective that he would be given the final victory over his enemies. And for us, who've been included among God's people, as we trust in Jesus, the person of God, as we, as been included in Jesus, have become the people of God as well, God holds out to us too the promise that we will have certain victory, that our enemies will be defeated, and you and I are to see our lives from this perspective. Turn across with me please to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, we read of the Thessalonians, surprise, surprise, who, um, who have put their trust in Jesus and are suffering. They're being persecuted. They're being chased and harassed. Uh, they're suffering serious persecution in all kinds of trials. And God has seen it all, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1. God's seen it all and he promises them relief. He promises them relief. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6. Chapter 1 verse 6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. The people of God will be given relief. The persecutions and the trials that they face at the hands of their enemies, God will deal with them. One day he will destroy them. They will be gone forever. And this will happen, we're told by Paul, when Jesus appears. When he returns, Jesus will win. And we will share in the spoils of his victory. Some things uh, that come in the future are reasonably certain, aren't they? Uh, Some things you can, with a great deal of confidence, you can say, yes, this will happen in the future. For example... Uh, South Sydney will not win the 2008 Premiership. I think we're reasonably certain of uh, that. In the future, we are absolutely certain that Jesus will win. This is a great word of comfort that we've been given here as God's people because what we're seeing is that in Jesus, that's where real power lies. He is the one who will have the ultimate victory and that no no matter what else may come or go, no matter who or what opposes us, the Lord Jesus will win and he'll restore his people and it'll be at the expense of our enemies. They will not trouble us anymore. And now as the people of God, look, we've got plenty of enemies and one day God will remove them and relieve us of them. Here's a couple of enemies that we're looking forward to being relieved of. And one is those who persecute the church. There are people who belittle and marginalise, and scoff, and laugh at people who torture, beat, imprison, and kill Christians. God's people have others who hate them. As God's people, we have enemies. And we're told here in 2 Thessalonians 1 that if they persist in this, they will lose The Lord Jesus himself will punish them with everlasting destruction and God's people will be given relief. Now, this, I imagine, is especially comforting to those people in countries like we heard of in Nigeria where they suffer violent persecution. Or countries like Indonesia, similar to Nigeria where you've got Muslim extremists violently persecuting and killing them. North Korea, where the government imprisons and tortures Christians. And you can replay that over and over again with country after country. And God's word to his people is that one day our enemies will be defeated and destroyed and done away with. So hang in there. So if you are someone that endures the belittling, you don't look like you're being tortured or beaten or imprisoned, But if you endure the belittling, the marginalisation, the scoffing, the ridicule of people because you trust in Jesus, hang in there. Hang in there because Jesus will win. Jesus will win and so we stick with him. We stick with him. It's all worth it. So hang in there. Second enemy that um, we're looking forward to being done away with, and there's more but we'll just do with two, and that is sin itself. There's our sin that's within, isn't there? There's our sin that's within that we struggle with and we wrestle with it and we have to fight it and it, it, it fights against us. In Galatians we read that our sinful natures fight with the spirit so that we're always in a constant struggle in trying to live the godly life. I don't know what sins uh, you struggle with. It might be anger. I don't know what presses your buttons with a short temper. It might be your kids at home. It might be people that you work with. It might be someone in particular in the schoolyard that you just don't get along with. I'm not sure what presses your buttons, but it could be anger that you are constantly wrestling with. It might be bitterness, that there's something that someone said or did so many years ago but you just can't let go. It might be discontentment. You're just not satisfied with what Christ has done and has given you. And you're always wanting more and you're just wrestling and struggling with, you just want more but in Jesus we have all that we need. It might be complaining that you're someone that really struggles to give thanks, give thanks to God or give thanks to other people. You just find yourself complaining. It it might be gossip that you just find yourself... in. It's even before you even realise it, that you're talking behind someone's back and you're talking them down and you know that what you're meant to say is whatever's helpful for building people up, but you just find it really hard. It might be lust. The magazines, the movies, the books, the internet sites that you just really struggle with, that you know you shouldn't and and you don't want to, but they're just so enticing. Or maybe it's just plain selfishness, the sin of selfishness that you struggle with. You're just tired of serving other people and putting yourself out for others and it just feels like nobody cares for me and you just want to crawl into your own little shell and look after yourself. And Struggling with sin is frustrating, isn't it? Day in, day out, grinding away, fighting the fight that we might serve Jesus faithfully. That's hard and it's frustrating and it's tiring and God holds out to us the promise that one day it'll all end. It will end. And he'll wipe it out and we'll be free. So hang in there, keep struggling, keep grinding. But it's not just the sin within, there's the sin without. There's the sin of other people around us that we have to deal with. Uh, And that's a constant thing that's... uh, always beating down us, isn't it? There could be people at work that just are really negative and really selfish and they always try to outdo you or to do you harm. There's there's selfishness of people at home where we just don't pull our own weight and we're always fighting and bickering about what we're meant to do. There's taking your kids to the park to go and play but the playground equipment's all gone because somebody's gone and trashed it and graffitied it and there's uh, being ripped off by people. There's taking your kid to sport but the coach always shows favoritism your kid never gets a go there's uh you send your child to school and they mix with some other child at school who's had a really rough morning because they've been fighting with their parents and they pick on your kid and your kid comes home and picks on you and then you're all fired up and then someone rings you up and you have a go at them and then there's other people talking behind your back because you had a real go at someone else and it all just started with some other kid not even part of your family having a rough time at home who brings it to school comes into your there's always the sin without the mess of the world that we live in, that we're all sinners and we all impact on each other's lives. And that can make life hard. one day, again, God says, our enemy's sin will be dealt with. Not just the sin within, but the sin without sin totally gone. And so as you struggle with sin and living in a messed up world, persevere, hang in there, because he will win, And he'll share the spoils of victory with his people. He'll restore them to himself. God's victory is coming. And all our enemies will be done away with. And it'll happen on the day that Jesus comes to be glorified in his holy people. To be marveled at among those who have believed. And this includes you. Because you believed our testimony to you. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you do win. We want to thank you that your enemies will not conquer, not you, not your people. Father, thank you that one day you will destroy all evil. And uh, we pray that as we wait for that day, you would help us to persevere. Please help us to understand our life from the comfort and the encouragement that you always win and that you'll bring us safely into your your grand new creation. And so, Father, we pray that as we wait for that day, uh, we would stand firm as your people, trusting in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray that uh, our enemies would realise their error and turn to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. Father, thank you for your goodness to us as we've seen this morning from your word. Amen.